I get a, a buzz out of it, I must say, you know, it's it's like I'm a detective and I found something. Welcome back. It's your favourite podcast dedicated to climate misinformation, hosted by me, Aggie. And by me, Sean. So for the final time this season, which is very sad, we're Stop Funding Heat and this is our podcast, Sounding the Alarm on Climate Misinformation. We talk about all kinds of lies, mistruths and deceptions that you might hear out there about climate change in the wild. So if it involves climate change and it's false, we want to cover it. So on today's episode, we're going to chat with some of the true MVPs involved with Stop Funding Heat. Stop Funding Heat is a grassroots organisation, which means whenever possible, it's powered by people. Yeah. So, for example, we've had a group of people dedicated to fighting climate misinformation in the UK, scanning newspaper headlines every morning for climate misinformation. We post a lot of it on our social media and call out the big brands funding it. And today we've got two people who volunteer for Stop Funding Heat joining us to share their experiences with us, right? Yep. I'm really looking forward to this. I've had the pleasure of working closely with Laura and Merlin for the past six months. Interestingly, Laura has also been involved with a highly successful campaign that targets GB News. That's led by Stop Funding Hate. That's a campaign that we based ours off of that uses the same theory of change. Stop there. Jargon alert. And you're going to have to unpack that. Theory of change is a term that we use all the time in the campaigning world, but it probably makes very little sense to people who don't operate in that. And we covered it way back in episode one of the podcast. So you can go and check that out. Just for new listeners, Sean, what is a theory of change? Okay, so... A theory of change, put most simply, is a way of stating your strategy for a campaign. They normally look a bit like, if we do these particular things, then this particular good change will happen. Right, so for Stop Funding Heat, ours is, if people can convince brands to pull their advertising money from newspapers and social media platforms that spread climate misinformation, then we'll be able to make climate misinformation unprofitable. Yeah, that's better than I would have put it. (laughs) Definitely didn't take that from a document that I did. Um, well, thank you. It's <laughs> it's worth noting that we started it because it's a very tried and tested model. So Stop Funding Hate, our sister campaign, has had huge success using a very similar theory of change, but they focus on hate speech in the UK. Mm. Several newspapers in the UK are on record saying that they changed their editorial stances, at least in part due to Stop Funding Hate, which is frankly incredible. That's like mm-hmm. the impact that that campaign's had. Check My Ads um, is another campaigning group and they've done similar things targeting media like Fox News in the US and Sleeping Giants have also targeted Fox as well as the Murdoch Press in Australia. But Stop Funding Heat focuses on climate misinformation is maybe the first campaign to apply this campaigning model to tackle the enormously important issue of climate misinformation and we're pretty proud of it. (laughs) And as we know, based on all our previous episodes, which you should go listen to, we're now at number seven. Uh, the threat level of climate misinformation has been growing and growing. And that's why we're here to raise awareness about it. So Aggie, let's get going. But first, of course, it wouldn't be the Stop Funding Heat podcast without an icebreaker. So Laura and Merlin, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. So for today's icebreaker, we're going to do something that today's guests are becoming experts in each morning as they scan the news. We are going to be asking, what is the latest climate misinformation that you've seen? So Sean, do you want to kick us off? Yes. So um, I have been 
very annoyed for the last week to see an article in the Telegraph, which I'm going to say that the body of the article is mostly fine with some uh, clangers in there. But I think this just goes to show how the how the news can sometimes work more as a business than as like providing actual information because an article's title was net zero is the reason we have empty supermarket shelves. We all know that some vegetables are hard to find in the UK at the moment and you can trust the Telegraph to go and blame uh, climate policy for that when <laughs> we all know it's more to do with import problems. Uh, yes, bad weather in Europe, but there's plenty of vegetables here in Spain, even though that's where the bad weather's happening. And I don't think it's to do with climate policy either. So I've been dealing with that emotionally for a while. Laura, what do you want to tell us what you've got? Yeah, so I saw an article in Slate a few weeks ago explaining that um, Tucker Carlson has apparently been pushing this idea that offshore wind farms are devastating whale populations, um, which is just not not really what's going on. (laughs) Devastating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's quite a word to use. Yeah. So they, um, about a large group of whales washed up on the New York and New Jersey coast. And so they were thinking that because it was near this pre sort of in the planning stages wind turbine area that that was what had caused it but scientists determined that like most of the whales were killed by boat strikes and fishing equipment so it's not the wind turbines yeah i bet that was the first time they were concerned about whales on uh, fox news <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah he's not Suddenly. he's not arguing that we end fishing <laughs> to yeah. to save the whales what about you melon the worst one is a bit in the daily express which said that Putin saw that Boris Johnson had signed up for, you know, these net zero commitments. Because of that, he decided to to invade Ukraine. And that, that was the reason. It was just mind-bogglingly wow. stupid. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I forget who read it. But, yeah, it was basically trying to link, you know, the invasion of Ukraine uh, to net zero, you know, saying that by going down the net zero path, we're leaving ourselves open to blackmail by Russia and, and we should have... We should have done more fracking to, I mean, all, all completely, all complete rubbish linking energy security to fracking and, yeah, you yeah. know, saying that net zero is going to make us insecure. Yeah. And, and in fact, the, the opposite is true, but it doesn't stop them publishing it. It's bordering on conspiratorial in nature, isn't mm. it? It's just like anything bad is to do with climate policy. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's getting a bit ridiculous. Aggie, what do you have? Mine is niche and British. Uh, it's a uh, Tesco accused of greenwashing over biodegradable tea bags. It's important, um, <laughs> but uh, it just struck me because basically this like team of researchers buried a tea bag in soil for a year and then they dug it up and were like, "It isn't biodegradable." And I just I just love the commitment. I'm like, yeah, it's important to make sure that we're on the same page about what these uh, these terms mean and that we're not sort of just you know, using them with different meanings. So yeah, that's mine. Yeah, that seems like a, seems like a, a very small thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> Mini, but it's, it's symptomatic, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Merlin, Laura, it's great to have you on the podcast. Can you tell us a bit about yourselves and what prompted you to get involved in the roles that you're doing now with Stop Funding Heat? So I've been I've been interested in nature and the environment since I was a kid. And I have really strong memories of learning about climate change all the way back, you know, as a small child in the 80s and 90s. 
and that feeling of being worried and helpless about it. And so by the time I was at university in the early 2000s, those issues were starting to show up in the media more. And I, I really remember one encounter in an undergraduate biology class where a fellow student gave this presentation on global warming that sort of repeated all the classic um, misinformation talking points like rising carbon dioxide is good because plants need CO2. And so things like that, that kind of disinformation I started seeing more and more, it made me really interested in the way that journalism and the media impact the ideas in our culture. When Stop Funding Heat was founded, it seemed like a great way to sort of combine those interests and do something constructive about disinformation rather than just feeling helpless about it. My name is Merlin Lenahan, and I wanted to get involved in Stop Funding Heat because I'm, you know, an avid reader of the press and over the years, I've seen so much, you know, climate misinformation out there. It's kind of, you know, made me angry seeing it day in, day out. And I've also wanted to do, you know, get involved in climate activism, you know, for a long time. But it's difficult with work and family and, and other commitments, you know. So this was the ideal opportunity to help and, you know, try and highlight climate misinformation. It's interesting, Merlin, it sounds like uh, this role lends itself quite well to your busy lifestyle and gave you an opportunity to, to do something, even though you've got quite a lot on. Yeah, I, you know, I've always had a fear that I would join a, a group or an organisation and then I would let them down by not being able to commit. But what I like about Stop Funding Heat is that it's quite easy to fit around other commitments. You know, I, I enjoy even if it's reading kind of unpleasant articles. I still like scanning the, the newspapers. And what I also like about it is it's quite direct, you know. We, we get the information, then it's, you know, put on social media to highlight, to, to advertise. It's all quite direct and, and quick, which for me is a, a big bonus. When did you first notice disinformation in your life? 20 years ago, I'd say, uh, which is maybe show my age up a bit, but... Climate was becoming a more visible issue and more direct denial, you know, saying that climate change is not a problem and or it doesn't exist or, you know, you don't need to worry about it. But I think it was that time when, you know, governments were starting to take kind of action, you know, encourage renewable energy, starting to realise it was a problem, even if, you know, they weren't doing that much about it. And that's when I remember first seeing, you know, climate denialism in the same newspapers we get now you know the the mail and the telegraph and and, and the express so yeah i remember reading the the newspapers when i was a lot younger but i think i was too young to be able to discern like the good journalism from the from the false information i remember i i read the telegraph on the train a couple of times and that thought nothing of it but apparently it's gotten worse in the last uh, 15 20 years as well Laura, you said that, well, we know that you've been involved with Stop Funding Hate originally, which is a separate organization from Stop Funding Heat. They also target advertisers, but they focus on uh, hate speech in the UK. What's it like being involved in the team that's uh, been focusing on GB News there? So it's been very rewarding and also it can be intense. Um, comparing it with Stop Funding Heat, a lot of climate change misinformation can be abstract and depersonalized. You're often dealing with large-scale technological and economic issues, whereas the GB News hate speech, it's directed right at people I care about, so friends and family, and it's harmful in a very immediate and kind of distressing way, so that can be difficult. 
during my shifts, I found some really bad like anti-LGBTQ, anti-Semitic, anti-vaccine segments that we've been able to use in our campaign. So it's difficult, but it's a great feeling knowing that you're making a concrete difference and that you might actually prevent this stuff from going out into the world um, more than it already is. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, I suppose, when you find that stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, have you had any wins on that campaign? Yeah, so one of our big early successes was with Sainsbury's, um, which initially really resisted removing their adverts from the network. Our campaigning put a lot of pressure on them, and also a big group of the store's employees then very bravely voiced their concerns about it as well, and that did result in their ads being pulled. And we know, because GB News has said this publicly several times, that losing the big brand advertising has really hit them hard and made it more difficult for them to operate, to improve their offerings and increase their viewership. So I hope that we can convince the big advertisers that running ads next to climate disinformation is just as damaging to their brands as being on GB News. Definitely. So Merlin, can you tell us what a typical shift as a volunteer with the the news research team involves? Uh, Yeah, sure. I mean, from my point of view, I do mine on a Saturday morning, get up, open up the computer and start reading. I have the Telegraph and the Sun. And it's like, you know, I feel like a detective looking for misinformation in there. And I kind of scan through it and then, you know, focus on the articles that mention climate change. And then it's that kind of reading through it and analysing it and thinking about whether it's kind of direct denialism or it's sort of, which I see more and more of, soft denialism, which is basically talking about how net zero is going to be too expensive or, you know, it's going to cost poor people, they won't be able to heat their homes. It's not saying that climate change isn't real, but it's saying the cost of doing something about it is going to be prohibitive, you know, and I'm seeing that that, that's what I see most of um, on my shift anyway. And then obviously it's logging it and it usually doesn't take, you know, too much out of my day, you know, maybe half an hour or an hour if if there's a lot in there. And how does it feel when you come across it? I get a a buzz out of it, I must say. You know, it's it's like I'm a detective and I found (laughs) something and that's what I'm hunting for. Obviously, it's bad because they're putting misinformation out there. But for me, it's like you know, quite enjoyable to find it in a strange way and and to read it. Is that how you feel too, Laura? Yeah. (laughs) It it can be depressing and sometimes it makes you angry, but but it's nice to feel like you're doing something concrete. I don't think I could do it watching the news, though, because there's something about watching uh, the news which makes me much more angry and riles me up. I get more upset at the person that's saying the climate misinformation if it's on the news because you're like oh you're actually standing in front of a camera and, and have the gall to say something that you probably know is wrong although I can't be sure compared to like writing it down it feels a bit different but also it kind of happens happens at you doesn't it rather than yeah. you being in control of like the reading and being able to stop when you want oh, that's true like, I don't yeah know. that's yeah. true as well but I imagine like finding the misinformation must be a bit like has anyone watched The Glass Onion recently? But like, aha, I got you. The moment, like, like just any detective, any detective <laughs> thing, like, here, here, Holmes, here's the answer. Is there ever anything that you come across that you feel is a bit borderline? So it's hard to tell. Can we definitively name this as climate misinformation? It feels a bit like you're not sure at all. 
Yeah. Um, so definitely there was something just uh, last week that we were looking at, which was the addition of hydrogen gas into the British gas system, ostensibly to reduce emissions. But then it's very confusing. So is that going to be green hydrogen? The article doesn't say. Is it better to be using the hydrogen for people's housing for heating their homes, or is it better to use that for heavy industry? So we had a discussion about this um, in our chat group with the other activists, and it was like, we weren't really sure whether it was disinformation or not. That's really interesting. And, and how about you, Melon? Have you come across anything that you felt a bit borderline about? Yeah, I, I think for me, there's a lot of articles about, you know, the transition to net zero and things like pointing out the environmental damage that mining nickel and cobalt will do and then these are all kind of materials needed for batteries and electric cars and that kind of thing and the thing is there is actually you know a lot of truth in that mining these materials does cause you know environmental damage but i think the articles often lack that context in that drilling for oil and gas and continuing as we are you know using fossil fuels is far more damaging so it's a kind of lesser of two evils. You know, it's difficult sometimes to establish whether their kind of motives are to stop the push to net zero or or their kind of genuine concerns. So I've been reading those with a lot of interest. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. Like it is factually accurate, but it is also derailing from the point that fossil fuels are also um, mined for, they're also extractive and mm. they're burning the planet. And they're causing long-term untold damage. And I suppose it's like, as part of our transition, it's going to be a bumpy road. And so it's not going to be perfect. And, you know, I think it is good to know the facts. But yeah, are people or are newspapers using that in a a way that is derailing or not? That's just like a a nuanced question to dig into. There's a taxonomy of climate misinformation, but there's also a... uh... There's something called Flick, which is looking at all the different types of um, fallacy that might go into misinformation. And one of the fallacies uh, is called impossible expectations. And I feel like in the media, they sort of exploit this idea of impossible expectations, where if something is not absolutely perfect in every aspect, then we're going to just like micro focus on the one negative point of it. A good example is the... uh, the current UK net zero policy like allows wood burning and like a company Drax does uh, does wood burning as part of net zero. I can link it in the show notes as well. And the papers will frequently bring that up and then use that as a as a foil to say, well, look, all of net zero is is terrible. Um, it must be all bad because this one part of it is bad. And it's just like not a realistic way to approach policy at all. But that gets exploited all the time. And yeah, it's like this it then becomes very hard to name something definitively as climate misinformation or not, because like there's a kernel of truth, but you know, it's, it's in, in the wider context, you know, not true. Yeah. I I think they're thinking of different angles, how they can, you know, attack net zero. So you can't always read these articles in good faith. Yeah. Even if they do have a strong element of truth in them. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Has been part of this team uh, changed the way that you think about reading the news now or about climate change? From my point of view, it it kind of confirms how I viewed the news, which was generally very cynically, you know, especially the newspapers we, we cover. I feel like I'm doing something now, you know, so from a personal point of view, I feel I feel like I'm 
achieving and doing something. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, I felt like a bit helpless, and I, I feel now at least I'm trying to do something about it. And what about you, Laura? So one of the things that shouldn't have surprised me but did is that just the absence of climate change reporting in most of the British newspapers. So reading these papers and just there's nothing about the scientific evidence for climate change. There's nothing about the environmental or social impacts or very rarely. It's basically disinformation or nothing. And so you realize that a huge portion of the British reading public is just not it's just a non-issue to them because it doesn't exist in in what they're reading. And do either of you, has, has it affected how much you talk about climate change with other people in your in your peer groups or with family? Does, has it equipped you to feel more confident about talking about climate change or less? Yeah, I definitely feel more confident talking about the misinformation stuff because I know so much more about it now. So I, I feel like I can really counter that stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I, I think doing this for the last um, few months has given me more confidence to to highlight it to people you know and and talk about climate change you know is there any particular message you want to relay to our podcast listeners anything that you want them to know or for them to bear in mind Uh, well I think the most important thing to do is that because a lot of this disinformation is directed at things that the policy is actually decided at the local and regional level Get involved in the local politics. Um, go to planning meetings. Talk to your local representatives on on issues that affect your community, because there are going to be people bringing that disinformation into those conversations, and you need to be there to counter it. I think what I would add is, and it's something I I need to do more of as well, is to, you know, really look at the advertisers, you know, uh, which are highlighted on on Twitter, you know, who who's advertising in, in the papers by the climate misinformation and then you know call them out and and it's something I, I've got to do uh, more of and actually you know if I'm using a company and they're advertising misinformation to stop using them and and tell them on Twitter I'm going to end my contract with you and go to another phone company or go to a different supermarket that's kind of thing that will hopefully get big companies' attention, you know. Really powerful interventions, you know, local politics, and mm-hmm. then also sort of harnessing the uh, the power of social media. I think, yeah, that's really, really great roots. Thank you very much. That's the idea of the theory of change as well, Merlin, isn't it? Like we put out the stuff and then it's up to people to, to you know, decide what they want to do with that and if they're comfortable. Because I, I know that um, Proton Mail said that they'll stop advertising alongside climate misinformation about a year or two ago, and that's a service that I use. And I was close to writing them something and saying, oh, maybe I don't want to use them if I see that advert. And actually they came back to someone else and said, oh, that's a mistake and we're going to remove it. And it made me just very happy to use the service uh, much more than... But I'm very happy to use it instead of Google, who don't seem to care so much about the client misinformation by comparison. So it's also like a really good opportunity for brands. I also think about the staff members, like being a customer service rep and getting that email or tweet and being like, God, I hadn't thought about that before. And then they might go to someone in their own company and say, did you know that we like advertise on GB News? (laughs) Like that could be quite a big, quite a big thing for some people that work in those places as well. And Laura, Merlin, a last question we want to ask everyone in this series is what's the most memorable piece of good climate information that you've seen? So a campaign or idea or piece of communications, anything, just something that struck a chord um, and that you think you could spread the word with our listeners? 
So for me, it's uh, the artist Kate Beaton, who you might remember from the webcomic Hark a Vagrant. She's just published her first graphic novel that's titled Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands, and it recounts the time she spent working at the Alberta Tar Sands to pay off her student loans. It's an amazing account of how poverty and governmental failures force people into these dirty extractive industries just so that they can have better lives. But that work then damages both individuals and communities in a lot of different ways. So not only environmental damage, but physical and mental health and community cohesion. And Beaton focuses in particular on the experience of women at the tar sands and the levels of sexual harassment and assault that's normalized there. So it's a difficult book, but it's also just incredibly beautiful and thoughtful. And I think if you're interested in any of these issues, it's it's a must read. Well, thanks for that, Laura. What about you, Melon? I wanted to highlight a talk by a Canadian climate scientist called Catherine Hayo, and it's about 15, 20 minute long talk on, you, can, you know, you can watch it on YouTube. And her message is kind of fairly simple. She says that, you know, to encourage, you know, change around climate and to make people aware of it, you you first got to talk about it and, you know, having conversations with work colleagues or friends or family and even if people are kind of resistant or, you know, obviously people might challenge you as well, it's just about raising it as an issue and making people more more aware. And the idea is the more people who get interested in climate or, you know, understand it, the more that is likely to lead to, you know, systemic change. Those are two really good suggestions. Uh, and I haven't haven't read or watched either of them. So I'm going to dig into those when I can. <laughs> Same. Great. Well, it's been really good having you on the podcast, guys. We really appreciate you giving your time, not just today, but uh, to stop funding heat in general. Like without you guys, this sort of stuff just doesn't happen um, because alas, the people that climate misinformed tend to have a bit more money than the organizations trying to stop it. But we have we have the people power. My pleasure. You know, it's been really fun to, to chat. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Stop Funding Heat's podcast is co-produced by Stop Funding Heat and Reform Radio. It's presented by me, Aggie Hall, and my co-host, Sean Buchan. Big thanks to our guests today, Laura and Merlin from Stop Funding Heat's news research team. You can read our latest report on how platforms are greenwashing the fossil fuel industry at www.stopfundingheat.info forward slash greenwashing. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email hello at stopfundingheat.info. We also started a new initiative called Greenwash Dog. We're asking anyone that's seen fossil fuel industry adverts online to send them to us so we can make a database because platforms refuse to do that themselves. Find that from our greenwashing report page too. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm really sad to say that this is our last podcast of the season. But just in case you miss us, you can go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes which cover other issues around climate misinformation. We now have seven podcast episodes in total. Oh, and if you like the podcast, please let us know. It will help us get more episodes out. Tweet us at StopFundingHeat or use the hello at stopfundingheat.info email. Cheers. Bye-bye.